If you have a Bible, turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Now we are going verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. And I would like you to put your thinking cap on today. All right? Not that you usually don't have it on. But uh, today we are covering, especially if you have just recently started coming to Northland, I'd like you to pay very close attention to what we're covering today. Because what we're covering today is something that is going to be one of the keys for you to understanding the Word of God. Now, this is the second part of the message called The Mystery is Made Clear. And you might say, well, that doesn't make sense to me. What mystery? Well, we're going to cover that today, but this is picking up where we left last week at the end of chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul says this, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you word. Now we'll just stop right there because starting in verse 2 through verse 13, what you have is you have a, in a sense, a parenthesis in the text. He's going to pause with that idea and then he's going to explain something, then he'll pick up with it. And well, of course, we're going to pick up with that next week. But from verses 2 through 3, it's a large parenthesis, and it is ground that needs to be covered to properly understand the uniqueness of what we call the church. Now, we covered it last week. The church is not a building. The church is a body of people which is made up of all people who have trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior from the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 to the rapture of the church whenever that takes place. Now you notice it says, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, the question has to come up. Very important now, what is a dispensation? Let me give you some information I've collected from some very reliable sources. One source says this, a particular way of God administering his rule over the world as he progressively works out his purpose for world history. So in other words, God is working from the time of creation. He is working in the world, and he at certain times deals with man in certain ways to accomplish his work. Another resource said, our English word economy is derived from uh, directly from the Greek word okonomia, the law of the house or a stewardship or management. Now, stay with me on this, okay? God has different ways of managing his program from age to age, and these different stewardships Bible students sometimes call dispensations. God's principles do not change, but his methods in dealing with mankind change over the course of history. So his truth is his truth, but how he exercises and works out that truth, that is the difference in dispensations. Another resource said this, these different dispensations are not separate ways of salvation. Understand this now, listen, because there are people who say we're dispensationalists, but they're ultra, we call them ultra dispensationalists, and they think people in the Old Testament were saved by keeping the law. Now, I don't know what Bible they're reading, but the Bible's very clear. You read Romans and you read Galatians, and it's always been one way, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how you're saved. And it's always been that way. It's all In the Old Testament, they look forward to the day when the Messiah would come and make a payment for sin. Now we look back at the day when Messiah did come, Christmas, 
And of course, he grew up, went to the cross, died on the cross, made a payment for sin, came back from the dead. And so they looked forward by faith that it would be done. We look back by faith that it was done. But it's always been by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. Now, again, these different dispensations are not separate ways of salvation. During each of them, man is reconciled to God in only one way, i.e., by God's grace through the work of Christ that was accomplished on the cross and vindicated in his resurrection. Now, I gave you what a dispensation is, but listen carefully. The dispensation of the grace of God, that period, so to speak, has to do with the dispensation we are in now. In other words, we are living in the dispensation of the grace of God. Another simpler term that we often use here in our church for this dispensation is called the church age. The church age. The emphasis during this time is the grace of God. Truth is always truth, but the emphasis now is the grace of God. See, God has many things, many truths, but you might say during this period of time, the thing that is emphasized the most, the spotlight is on the grace of God. And that is what we are focusing on during this church age. So let's break this down a little, okay? First, we want to talk about the mystery of the church. In the Bible, now I know I'm kind of repeating myself a little bit, but in the Bible, A mystery is a truth not revealed until the proper time. It was something no one but the Lord knew about. It wasn't something that people were trying to figure out and God was saying, no, 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 guess again, guess again, guess again. That's how we think of a mystery. That's not the Bible idea of mystery. A mystery is something that no one knew about. God knew about it. He had a plan but he didn't manifest it until the right time. It was something no one but the Lord knew about. The Old Testament saints, now here you go, listen carefully. The Old Testament saints, the Old Testament believers, knew nothing about the church age and never wrote about it with understanding. Listen, the Old Testament does talk about the Gentiles being saved, but it doesn't explain when that would be, and it doesn't explain who all would make up the body of Christ. It was not a mystery that Gentiles would be saved. The mystery, as we will see, and I'll repeat this in a few minutes, the mystery was that there would be a body of both Jew and Gentile making one. That was the mystery, and that thing is called the church. If it was, in fact, unknown and unrevealed, then it wasn't written about until after the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the church age began. It was revealed in a general form to Peter, if you remember in Acts chapter 10, but it wasn't explained. See, God was transitioning. The church age had begun, but God was transitioning the thinking of the Jews. Peter was a Jew, but he's a saved Jew. And so God had to give him that vision of the clean and unclean animals. The Jews considered themselves clean, But they considered the Gentiles as unclean. Yet this sheet came down and it had both clean and unclean animals on the sheet. But of course, it was revealed much clearer to the Apostle Paul. Now, this is critical to properly understanding the Bible, especially when it comes to the issue of prophecy. Now, listen carefully. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he was here, he did not explain the church. 
He mentioned it, but he didn't explain it in the Gospels. And that would include the prophetic passages, such as Matthew chapter 24 through 25, Mark chapter 13, and also Luke chapter 21, which are parallel passages dealing with future prophecy. The things in view there are not, when it talks about Jesus coming again, it's not talking about the rapture, it's talking about the second coming to earth. Now you might say, I've never heard any of this, I'm still lost. Well, I'm going to show you a couple charts in just a minute that might be helpful. In other words, when the Lord Jesus Christ spoke of his coming again in these books, he was not talking about the rapture, but he talked about the seven-year tribulation period, a time of trouble on this planet that will be unparalleled in human history according to Jesus, and then him coming at the end of that to defeat the armies of the world and set up his kingdom. He did not explain the church, but he did mention it in Matthew chapter 16 and 18. Now, because of this, the church age in which we live has been effectively described as a parenthesis or a gap in the plan of God. Now, when I say a parenthesis, I'm not talking about something that was added later. It was just something that no one knew existed in the plan of God. Let me show this to you. Let me show you what the future looked like to the Jew, even the Jewish believer before the book of Acts. Here's the way they saw it. The Old Testament talked about the first coming of Christ. It talked about the death of Christ. The truth of it is it even talked about the resurrection of Christ in Isaiah 53. But then what they understood, Jesus talked about a time of trouble that was going to come on the world. That was the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, as I've mentioned, okay? And that was this period of time here. And then he would come back at the end of that time to defeat the armies of the world and set up his millennial 1,000-year kingdom. This is how the Jews saw the future. This is even Early on in the book of Acts, this is even how the Jews saw the future who were part of the early church. That's why they said, you know, Lord, when are you going to come back, establish your kingdom and so forth? Like in Acts chapter 1, he talked about it. It's not for you to know the times. He hadn't revealed it yet. So this is the way they saw the future. Jesus would die, pay for sin, ascend to heaven, but then the Jewish nation would come into judgment, the seven-year tribulation period. Jesus would come back at the end of that time, defeat the armies of the world, defeat the Antichrist, the false prophet, and all the lost, and then he would, there's a judgment there, the judgment of the nations, and then he would set up his millennial rule and reign on this planet for a thousand years before creating a new heaven and a new earth. Now, I told you all that, and I'm going to go back and forth here a little bit, so bear with me. So here you go. This is the way they saw it. Now, let me show you what was in the mind of God and what transpired or what unfolded. Let's look at the next one. Look what was put in between the time of Christ and the tribulation period, the church age. That was the mystery. Man did not know about it. It was mentioned, yes, to Peter, but it was really revealed to the apostle Paul. And we see that here in Ephesians chapter 3. So this was the plan of God. This was the mystery. And as time went on in the book of Acts, this was revealed, 
Okay, and then of course you have Paul, God giving him tremendous, tremendous insight into this period of time. This is where we live today. We are not looking at going into the tribulation. We are looking at for the rapture of the church when Jesus is going to take the church out of the world before the tribulation begins. Look at the other slide again. Now take the church out the tribulation, you notice this is the way the Jewish people saw it. The tribulation period is called the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah chapter 30, Jacob had his name changed to Israel. They did not understand what was coming. Now today we're in the church age. Next slide, please. And we can understand this is in fact where we're at. You might say, well, where are we along this line? Well, I'll tell you what I think right there on the edge of the rapture. I think Jesus is coming back at any moment. Are you ready to go? I hope you're ready to go. I'm ready. Listen, my bags are packed. Even if they weren't packed, I'm going. If you're a person who's chronically late, you won't be late as a believer for the rapture because it doesn't depend on you. It depends on Jesus and he's always on time. May not be your time or mine, but it's his. Let's go back to the text. So this is the way it was. And so when we talk about the dispensation of the grace of God, it's talking about the church age. It was a mystery in the plan of God. I hope you get it. Ephesians chapter three now, verse three, Paul says, how that by revelation he made known, the Lord made known unto me the mystery as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when ye read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Again, The truth not revealed until the proper time. God revealed it to the apostles, okay, especially to Paul. That was the proper time. And so he started revealing the truths of the church age, which in other ages, verse five, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. So here we see it. We see the mystery of of the church. But under that, we see the earthly revelation of the church. The apostles and the prophets also had the church age revealed to them. Remember now, Paul was not the only one. People who are ultra dispensationalists, they'll say, well, no one knew about it except Paul. No, that's not true. That's not true. Well, the church didn't start until Paul. That's not true either. Because Paul talks about those who were in Christ before him. How does that work? Well, They were saved before he was. That's why they were part of the church before he was. So it didn't start with him. A deep understanding started with him. Now, again, specifically now, let's talk about this. What exactly is the mystery? You might say, we've covered that. It's a church age. Technically, that is true, okay? But it's even more specific. And here it is, folks. And this is important to understand. Not that the Gentiles would be saved, but that they as believing Gentiles would form one body with believing Jews together. That is really the mystery. We see it in verse six. It says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Jew and Gentile making one body. You might say, when a Jew gets saved, does he cease being a Jew? No. What is he? He's a saved Jew. It's like you as a Gentile. When a Gentile gets saved, does he cease being a Gentile? No, he's a saved Gentile. So what do you have? You have this wonderful, big family, and it's made of Jew and Gentile. 
Hold your place here and look with me to Galatians chapter 3. Paul, again, talking about the uniqueness and the wonder and the, the awesomeness of this thing we call the church. The church is not a denomination. When you get to heaven, God is not going to say, oh, wait a minute, before you step in here, are you Baptists? There are no Baptists in heaven. <gasps> Hear me out. There's no Baptists. There's no Lutherans. There's no Methodists. Okay. Oh, I'll tell you, the Baptists are fuming right now at me for saying that. There's no charismatics. There's no non-denominational. Well, there, you'll understand what I'm saying. What is there? It's simply those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior. Now, I'm not saying everybody in every denomination is saved. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying, though, is this. Your denomination is not what gets you to heaven. It's the blood of Jesus Christ shed on Calvary to pay for your sins. That's what gets you to heaven. Now, I had the privilege of getting saved in a non-denominational ministry. So I'm understanding towards people who don't have a denominational label. Why? Because that doesn't get you to heaven. Now, yes, there are some denominations that are more biblically accurate than others, and we, we thank the Lord about that. But again, that isn't what saves you. When we get to heaven, everybody who's there, you walk up to anybody in heaven, how'd you get here? By the sacrifice of my Savior on the cross. By the death, burial, and resurrection of my Savior on my behalf. That's how you got there. Christ died for my sins. That's how you get there. Galatians 3.26, for ye are all the children of God, how? By faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 28, for there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. This special group of people who put their faith in Christ, they are called the church. Now, this leads us to today the second point that I want to make, and it is this. We are going to look, we see what the mystery is and how it fits. We understand now the church age, but what we're going to do is we're going to look a little bit at the ministry of the life of Paul. Can I say this today? Paul's life and ministry should be an encouragement to every one of us for our own lives. You might say, why is that? Well, let's look at it a little bit. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 7, it says this, Wherefore I was made a minister, a servant, according to the gift of the grace of God, given unto me by the effectual working of his power, unto me, now watch the wording here, unto me who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You see, Paul was not only saved by grace, but then he was empowered by the grace of God. Saved by the grace of God, empowered by the grace of God. Folks, we're not saved by our, our works, are we? We see right up here, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. No amount of good works will save a man. We are helplessly, hopelessly lost. That's why God sent Jesus into the world, because we could not save ourselves. We could not save ourselves. And so Paul understood this. He was a Pharisee. He was a law-keeping Jew Pharisee. He was a fundamental Jew. 
And yet he could not save himself. And he needed to meet, and he did. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he understood who he was, and he put his faith in Jesus Christ. Now, he had done some awful things before he believed in Jesus. I'm not talking about in a sense of moral, like him being immoral or committing, uh, you know, sins like fornication or these kind of, I'm not talking about that. Pornography, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about heinous crimes against believers. This was what he was known for. Paul said he was less than the least of all saints. Now listen carefully. I want you to understand from the Bible, he really believed that. This is not false humility. False humility is deceit. You pretend to be humble, but really you're proud, but you try to pass yourself off as humble. Listen, this is not false humility because that's deceit and God would not inspire any lying in his word. That's not what the Holy Spirit does. He doesn't lie. This is how Paul actually saw the way he had been. When he looked at his past life before he was saved, he had in view the heinous crimes he committed against the church, the body of Christ. Hold your place here and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 15. Remember what we just read. Paul says, I am less than the least of all the saints. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, it says this. This is a faithful saying. Here he is again. He's writing to Timothy, his son in the faith. And he says this to Timothy. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He still believed it. He believed he was the chiefest of sinners. Why? It was because of what he did to the church before he got saved. He persecuted the church of God. Now listen. And he was responsible for dragging off believers to die. He would enter the homes of Christians and drag them off to the authorities so that they would be found guilty and that they would be executed. This was his life before he got saved. Not only that, but he took pleasure in it. 1 Corinthians 15.9 says this, For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet or fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. This was something he had with him. He never forgot. You might say, why did the Apostle Paul, it seems, he soared to such great heights as a believer? I mean, he was so spiritual, he was so godly, he had so much insight. Christ was such a reality in his life. Let me ask you this. Could it be that because of how he viewed himself, he understood how much he needed the grace of God in his everyday life? He had to have it. He had to keep going back to the cross and realizing, forgiven, It's gone. It's been removed. As far as the east is from the west. Who taught us more about the doctrine of forgiveness and justification than Paul? See, what happens in our lives, folks, happens for a reason to where God wants us to learn from that and let him use that in our lives to make us great for himself. And when I say great, I'm not talking about worldly notoriety. I'm talking about, spiritually speaking, somebody who has an impact on the lives of others. You're still in 1 Timothy 1. Look at, in 1 Timothy 1, look at verse 12. 
And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, watch, who was before, before he was saved, a blasphemer? How is that? He rejected Jesus Christ as Messiah before he was saved. It was blasphemy to him to believe Jesus was God, the Messiah, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. Again, that means you take pleasure in inflicting pain on another. This is his mindset. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Listen, there's a lot of sincere people in the world, but sincerity is not a substitute for truth. You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong, and Paul was one of those. He was sincere. He was committed, but what he was doing was exactly opposite of what God wanted him to do. God didn't want him to destroy the church. He wanted him to build the church. Let me say this. When you start realizing how pure and holy the Lord is, it makes us more aware of our own sinfulness as well, doesn't it? It sure does. And that's all part of Christian growth, by the way. See, the closer you get to the Lord, the more aware you are of your sin. That's the truth of it. That's why a godly believer, as time goes on, they become less and less proud if they're godly because they understand how sinful we are. You know, again, the closer you get to the Lord, the more aware you are of your sin. It's like getting closer to the light. Let's say you've got a bunch of dirt on your face for whatever reason. You've been outside at night, you've got dirt on your face. And if you're away from the light, you're away from the light of the house, and you're out in the field someplace, and, and somebody just happens to know, or they saw a glimpse of you in some light, and they said, hey, you've got dirt on your face. You pull out a mirror when you're in the dark, and you can look, and you can say, I don't see anything wrong with my face. It doesn't look so bad to me. I mean, it, it, I look fine. I don't see any dirt. But you know, the closer you get to the light, and then you look, and then you get in bright light, and you look, and it's like, ooh, man alive. Where's the bathroom? I need to wash this off. I'm filthy. Guess what? We see how sinful we are the closer we get to the Lord. But you know, there's mercy and forgiveness with him. Here's the application on this. Maybe you believe that you have done so many terrible things and God can't forgive you. You know, there's, there's life stories in this church today. There are people watching today. I don't know what your past life has been, Folks, I know what my past life was like before I got saved. We all, maybe except for little ones who haven't experienced much of life yet, those of us who got saved later on in life, there's baggage there. There's regrets. There's things we've done and say, if I had a replay, I wouldn't do that again. And maybe it bothers you to this day. Listen, even though you know you've been forgiven, you know you have eternal life, maybe it still bothers you. What do we do with that? You know what? You just keep focusing on the grace of God and the forgiveness that God has provided. You claim that. Lord, you don't, you don't hold this against me. Help me not hold it against me. Now, that doesn't mean we, we just blow it off and then go live in sin. No, we're not talking about that. We're saying appreciate what God has given us in forgiveness, in grace. Appreciate that and say, you know what, Lord? I am so grateful that you've done for me what you have in saving me. You think God can't forgive you. He can, and he will. 
You might say, well, boy, but I've done some things since I've been saved. God can still forgive you. Now, listen, once you trust Christ, you're saved no matter what. You can't lose your salvation. But once we get saved, we still sin, don't we? That sin's been paid for. God will not hold it against us in light of eternity. But that can interrupt our fellowship, our daily walk with him. What does God want us to do? He wants us to confess that to him so that we can come into back, back in fellowship and walk with him again. He washes it, folks. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, right? Cleanse us. We're all in unrighteousness. Okay, let's say it's the middle of the summer. I know that's a stretch of the imagination right now. But you're outside and you're working and you're, you're sweating like a dog and you're, maybe you're in the garden and you got dirt all over and, and all of that. Boy, you know, isn't it wonderful? You're all grimy and gritty and sweaty and sticky and, and how gross that is. Isn't it wonderful to go inside and, and take a shower or wash your hands and face and get all the dirt off? It's nice and clean. Where does the dirt go? It goes right down the drain. Goodbye. It's in the past. The grace of God's that way in the life of the believer. Now, listen, I know there are people who may disagree with me on this. This is my opinion, but I think it's based on good Bible teaching or understanding of the Scriptures. I personally believe the Apostle Paul struggled his whole Christian life with what he had done before he was saved. Oh, wait a minute. He knew he was forgiven. He was a champion of grace. I get it. I get it. But it keeps coming up in his letters. It keeps coming up. In a, by the way, we haven't even covered all of them. Look at Philippians, what he talked about in Philippians chapter 3. There it is again, his past life and the way he was. But he kept going back and he kept realizing, yeah, it's the grace of God. I have to keep reminding myself. It's the greatness of the grace of God, the forgiveness that I have then I'm a child of God now and God wants to use me. Even though I've failed and I've sinned and I've had misstep and then I've stumbled, God still wants to use me. You might say, how long does God want to use me? Let me ask you this, are you still alive? Yes, he still wants to use you. He'll take you when it's time. When you die, he doesn't want to use you anymore. Now, by the way, if you've lived a godly life, he'll still use you in the memories of others. Once you're saved, as we walk with the Lord, we start experiencing and discovering the greatness of God, which you notice Paul talked about here in verse 8, Ephesians. Go back to Ephesians chapter 3. It says in verse 8, it says, Unto me who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given? Okay, look at the picture. His baggage. Unto me who am the least of all saints... Then what enters the picture? Grace. Isn't that beautiful? And then look. That I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Ugly. Grace enters the room. And a mission and a ministry for his life. That's how God sees life for you and me. That's how it's supposed to be. So what did he do? He preached the unsearchable riches of Christ. What is that? They are all the qualities and benefits we find in the Savior given to every saint individually and to the church corporately. Folks, as an individual Christian, as I walk with him, I have the privilege 
of learning about the unsearchable riches of Christ. And we as a church, as we live for Christ and fulfill our mission, isn't it wonderful as we grow spiritually and how the joy of the Lord can increase in our lives and we get excited and we see God using us as a church to reach other people for Christ? Isn't that exciting to see that? And we discover things or you get with somebody and you say, you know what I was reading here and I've read this I don't know how many times since I've been a Christian and I never saw this before. Isn't this a blessing? Yeah, that's one of those unsearchable riches. What did Jesus say? I'm come that they might have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Life, eternal life, that's salvation. The abundant life, that has to do with a blessed Christian life. Abundantly means overflowing in quality and quantity. Turn with me, hold your place here in Ephesians, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. The unsearchable riches of Christ. I mentioned this several weeks ago in my message that we don't understand how rich we are, and that's true. But you know what? God doesn't say, I don't want you to start learning. I want you to start understanding it. Because, folks, as we experience our richness in Christ, and I'm not talking about monetary wealth, I'm talking about spiritual wealth, and what God has for us, not only now, but in the future. That's why we have great hymns like, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, Look Full in His Wonderful Face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory. And what? Grace. Colossians 2, verse 8. Paul says, beware lest any man spoil you, take you captive through philosophy and vain deceit. We don't use that term much nowadays, vain deceit. That's vain deceit. You know what it means? It means empty lies. Empty lies. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, not after Christ. Watch verses 9 and 10. Here you go. For in him, Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. This word fullness here, it means means complete, filled to the full. It means jam-packed, crammed in. That's what the word complete means. In Jesus, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily is found there. And what Paul is saying is this, In Jesus, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily is crammed into Jesus. It's all there. But listen, not only is it all there, but I want you to know that you are crammed full because you're in Christ. Everything you need as a human being is found in Jesus Christ. And we as Christians have it all. Don't pray to God, God, give me more. No, it's Lord, let me discover what you've already given me. That's the truth. Let's go back to Ephesians 3. So he was going to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, verse 9, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God. Remember, the world didn't know about it. Who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now I take this to mean even the angels did not understand the church age until the Lord revealed it. 
both the truth of the church age and the church as it functions properly, what does that do? As time goes on, it reveals the manifold wisdom of God. We see the wisdom of God. And let me tell you something, folks. If you don't think the local church is important, it shows how little you understand the local church. It is the vehicle of God. Now, yes, we all can have individual ministries outside the church, and we should do that. But there is something unique that touches every aspect of life and ministry if the local church is what the local church is supposed to be. There is something unique about it. And I wish I don't have the time to go into detail, but I could name dozens of things that you only benefit from because of the local church as a Christian. It's God's vehicle. I don't argue with it. Most of Paul's letters were written to local churches, not just Christians at large. And by the way, that's not a Christian who's overweight. Some of you are awake. No, their letters written, the Romans is written to the believers at Rome, the church, the body of Christ, the local church, okay? Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, right? Then you have the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. Those are specific instructions on how the local church is to operate. Yes, there's spiritual truth there for every believer, but they're focused on local church, local church. By the way, not only how the church is supposed to function, we also know that the Lord will once again start dealing with the Jewish people. Remember our chart this morning? The Lord is going to once again start dealing with the Jewish people directly during that seven-year tribulation period. He's not through with them. Don't you listen to any Bible teaching that says, well, the Jews had their chance. God's rejected them. He's replaced the Jews with the church. No, he hasn't. No, he hasn't. Verse 12. In whom we have boldness and access and confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore, I desire that you faint not at my tribulations also, which is your glory. What does he mean his tribulations are their glory, okay? Remember, it's a prison epistle. He's in jail. Here's what he's saying. Me being here and my ministry is for your benefit. What I'm going through, it's going to benefit you and your church. That's what he's saying. He went through persecution so that others would be saved and instructed, okay? Listen, folks, again, the local church, it is something special in the eyes of of God. That's why it says in Hebrews, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. But we need to be together. We need to be together. The Word of God says so much about the local church and how it is to function to fulfill its purpose. And its purpose, we come to get instructed to learn the way of God, the Word of God, the ways of God, and then we take those and what do we do? From here, we go out and we reach the world. But there's an environment God wants us to have, and that environment, that base of operations is the local church. Now let's close over in Romans chapter 5. Perhaps you're here today and you might say, well, this is all new to me. I don't, I don't get it. Or maybe it's this, the things I've talked about today about the Apostle Paul. You can very much relate to them. And maybe you say, you know what? My life is a mess. It is a mess. Let me ask you this, friend. Do you know where you're going when you die? Say, I probably to hell. The way I've lived my life, well, can I tell you this? Anyone without Jesus Christ will end up 
in hell, but it doesn't have to be that way. You can be sure of going to heaven when you die. Look up here. Let me illustrate this to you. This is what made it clear to me. A man shared this many years ago and basically said this. This hand represents you and me. This is us. This wallet represents our sin. Here we are. We're all sinners. God loves us. He hates our sin. Our sin separates us from him. You cannot get to heaven with even one sin. Heaven's a perfect place. Now, God says, if we die with our sin, we'll be lost forever in hell. You'll suffer forever. There's no second chances. God does not want that for anyone. Religion says, I'll work hard and that'll take care of the sin. No, it won't. We're not saved by our works. Remember, the wages of sin is death. A death payment has to be made for sin, not good works. Good works don't pay for sin. So then what are we going to do? If the best we can do will not get rid of it, we're in trouble. Yes, we are. And the Bible says this, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. This hand representing the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice he's the sinless Son of God. When he died on the cross, he didn't die for himself. He died for you and me. Jesus took our sin upon himself and he made the complete payment, leaving us nothing left to pay for. Nothing left. He rose from the grave. He says this, if you will believe in him that he made that payment for you, he will give you as a free gift everlasting life. You go to heaven based on what he did for you. You're accepting the payment he made for your sin as your own. You're saying, I trust him as the one who died in my place and paid for my sins. And when you do that, he'll give you everlasting life. In Romans 5, verse 8, it says this, but God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, would you do that today? Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.